Hey, welcome back to another episode of State of the Art. I'm your host, Gabe BC, and for those of you just joining us for the first time, this is a podcast about the intersection of art and technology. Each week, I'll be having a conversation with another artist, curator, inventor, robot, museum specialist, or CEO about how creative people are working with tech. If you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear more about, feel free to send me an email at gabe at thestateoftheart.org. All right, let's get this week's episode started off. A couple of episodes ago, we had Ari Melenciano on the podcast. You may remember her as the founder of Afrotectopia. And while I was at Afrotectopia, I happened to meet an artist named Glenn Kantov, uh, who's going to be the guest on our podcast today. Glenn Kantov is an activist, performance artist, and social entrepreneur who uses immersive technology to highlight the narratives of the oppressed. He has been a TED resident, an artist in residence at iBeam, and a member at New Inc., the arts tech incubator at the New Museum. Glenn, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. So um, let's get started. How did you get involved with activism in the first place? And how did this uh, come together with technology for you? Well, my mom has always been sort of a troublemaker. Um, <laughs> in what sense? In a lot of senses. But from the perspective of activism, um, she's been organizing is really in her blood. So she worked at a Rite Aid for a while as a pharmacy technician and her coworkers and herself didn't get proper benefits. And so she ended up organizing around that and got uh, 1199 SCIU at the time, the largest healthcare workers union in the country, like in her right aid. Then she did it for two other right aids. And then it was just like a snowball effect from there. She started doing stuff for um, local elections, national elections. And she took me to the Eric Garner protest in Staten Island. And um, it's really hard to explain, but I just remember the feeling in every cell of my body just erupting and knowing that, like, this is the trajectory of my life. I have to do something about these social issues. And when was that? What was um, that protest? 2013, I believe. Okay. Summer of 2013 was when I was killed, yeah. And so that kind of made a huge impact on you at the time. Very much so. And what came from that? Like, did you start making projects immediately or did you start uh, staging protests immediately? So, so it wasn't immediate. So I was I was at school um, and I was involved in student government. So like, I knew that like I wanted to do something of, around the realm of social change. But really my um, me diving into activism started, um, it, was, it was sort of a process. So um, summer of 2015, I was interning at Mayor de Blasio's office and I learned through the bureaucracy that exists within the system that that the change that I wanted to make would exist outside of the system. And so I tried to do different organizing efforts that I thought were in line with what the mayor wanted, but because politics, because power, because insert excuse, um, I was shut down every step of the way. And so from there, I was like, okay, I need to do stuff outside of the system. What was the internship about at the time at the, at the mayor's office? It was just like a standard internship? Yeah, standard internship. Um, have my own department, desk, computer. And you were trying to like... <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't trying there. to do what I was told to right. do, I guess. like I, I did my work, but then outside of that, I was like, okay, let's make some change. There's 70 interns. Let's like actually do stuff. There's stuff going on in the world. Um, but it wasn't allowed to do that. And so, so what did you do like outside of uh, the internship? Um, so I, what I attempted to do was... Um, so it was... The summer 2015, when the Dominican government was retroactively taking citizenship away from a lot of its citizens, something that could be a reality here, folks. But um, to the people, most of the people were targeting at black Haitian people and black Haitian people at the time that only knew Spanish as a language, only knew the Dominican Republic. And it was completely racist. So I went to Council Ma Councilman Matthew Eugene, the only Haitian-born uh, councilman. He said he wanted to organize it around it as well. I said, okay, there's, you know, 70 other interns. We can definitely do something. 
And so we started making making phone calls, starting hosting meetings, like in my lunch. And then a higher up was like, you can't do this. <laughs> no. Yeah. Did you get fired from the internship or anything? Or I, just, didn't, I didn't yeah. get fired. Um, I actually had like a study abroad thing that started like right after I got like in trouble, more or less. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I should go do that. And it was Spanish. a good time to leave, it sounds like. Yeah, it was about And then time. how did it start with working with augmented reality or working with technology in protests for you? Yeah, so um, I... I was working at Jump Into the Light. It's a, a VR cinema um, in the Lower East Side. At the time, it was on Bowery. And um, just simple stuff. I was that guy who was outside, who was like, hey, have you tried VR yet? Yeah. Come on in. <laughs> stuff like that, right? <laughs> How did you end up in that job? Like, Were you interested in VR at the time, or was it more just like a gig you were looking for? No, I was really interested in it, and I'd, yeah. never, I'd never seen a VR cinema before. Like, literally walking into a space where people had headsets on when we're moving their arms around and spinning in these chairs. Like, I've never seen that behavior done in a space, and I was like, wow, it's here, it's now, let's go, what do you need? I didn't see a help wanted sign, I just asked, and huh. I just started helping out. Um, yeah, and then from there, like just being exposed to the different tools that are at your disposal that that were available at the time, it it just got my brain ticking because I think about the fact that you know you have these tech bros in Silicon Valley that are making billions of dollars disrupting systems, processes, cultures, all of this, right? But for social change, that is not happening, right? And so I was like, okay, I thought at first that like maybe VR could be a way to fight the alt right because at the time this was like during the twenty sixteen elections, right? I thought it could be an interesting tool to like immerse people and make people feel things in different ways that they, that would like unpack certain traumas or whatever. Um, But then it sort of evolved into augmented reality. Uh, The main reason being cost and accessibility. It's Mm -hmm. it's expensive and it's a lot to to create in in a VR experience. And then in terms of your headsets as well, I mean, not too many people have them, right? But 83% of Americans have smartphones and you could just, do it with AR. So. Right. Yeah, I've heard that a lot from people about VR, that they feel like it's a super interesting medium, but it's sort of limited in that way, right? Where you can't expose people who have never done it before. Or it's it's you have to have all these computers and all these headsets in order to move forward with it. Right. That's the problem. AR is today. VR is tomorrow, I think. Really? I think so. And yeah. so what was the first project that you made yourself? I mean, you're working in this uh, VR cinema. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then how did you make the jump to actually creating a piece? Yeah. So the way it started was... Um, it was, I saw Sutu's book, Prosthetic Reality, um, on the wall as an installation that jumped into the light. And I remember walking home one day, and this was when I was organizing around the uh, statue of Christopher Columbus, the Columbus Circle. My team, we were trying to get rid of him. We were trying to figure out creative ways to do so. And I was like, okay, wait a minute. If we can make an AR book or some sort of installation on the story of Columbus, like, let's go. So then from there, I just like brought my team together and we just deconstructed this process. It's like, okay. There's animation involved, there's illustration involved, there's sound design involved. Like, there's an app that is necessary, mm-hmm. right? Like, who knows how to do what? And just started, like, bringing people together uh, around this collective vision. And then we created a prototype and started and used that to host teach-ins in public spaces. And aside from the fact that our teachers were provocative, like, we had, like, a slave auction performance piece in the middle of Union Square to sort of tie Columbus to the genesis of the transatlantic slave trade. Like, aside from that very visual and provocative and visceral element to our protest, the fact that we were exposing New York City to a technology that most people had not seen, like, it drew crowds pretty quickly, and it went viral uh, a lot of the time. This was in 2015, you this said? This was in... Um, or this is in 2017. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. yeah. After the election. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and what was the piece that you were showing in Union Square? You were doing this uh, auction, but was there there was an AR piece that was a component yeah. of it um, so as there well? Were, there were a few AR pieces that were that were created. Um, 
actually one of the pieces were from prosthetic reality um sutu connected me to ezra clayton daniels and um adibokola bondunrin i hope i'm not butchering your name sorry buki um and yeah they were all about what we were doing they just said you know just let us like credit us and have like keep track of everything that you're doing with it and we were down with it and especially for the slave auction piece like they their piece specifically shows an auction block and when you hold your phone um when you hold the augmented reality app over the auction block it immediately turns into uh a courtroom and you and the slaves turn into prisoners and it's raining money so it speaks to cash bill mm-hmm. right and part of what we were looking to do with christopher columbus specifically was highlight the genesis of white supremacy and link it to structural racism and its manifestations in the present day right so like whether it's the fact that the, P- the pilgrims didn't have visas and what that means for daca and tps and the supreme court case that's coming up or the fact that columbus catalyzed the transatlantic slave trade and what that means for the system of mass incarceration and criminalizing poverty and putting black and brown people in cages like that link doesn't directly exist in my opinion and and that piece just like does it instantly through the medium of ar and Mm. it's not just ar for the sake of ar you know yeah i mean it seems like ar has the tendency or possibility to to add a layer of truth right if you want to use it that way yes (laughs) i mean it also has the possibility to add a layer of uh you know, fake news or something as well. I guess Absolutely. it depends on who's creating these these pieces. Absolutely. Um, do you do you work with AR frequently to sort of expose truths in, in your work? Yeah, absolutely. So, like, my perspective is number one, like, why AR, right? Because there are a lot of people that do it just to do it, and so there has to be like a specific value proposition. So, like, one of our projects, for example, is an augmented reality monuments project. And in terms of how we came about. Um, Use, in terms of how we came to the medium as a solution, you have to go back to the past. So, like, if you look at the riots that happened in Charlottesville, they happened because uh, it was a response to the Charlottesville Blue Ribbon Commission deciding to remove monuments of Confederate generals uh, Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. And so the Nazis and Klansmen organized and protested, and there was a lot of violence. I was there. I saw it myself. It was, it was horrendous. And so... If you're trying to challenge a monument or challenge this preconceived notion that, you know, white supremacy and intimidation and submit and submission of people of color should just be the status quo, that tension creates problems, right? And the same happened with our with our organizing around Columbus. Like in New York City, there's 155 statues of men, there's six statues of women, there's 23 animals, and they've only removed one statue and they're trying to put up 10 statues of women, which is good. But at the end of the day, the discrepancy that I just described is years in the making, Mm -hmm. right? And the main element here is cost. So bringing that back to augmented reality, what we're working on is an augmented reality monuments tour. And it's in in sort of a bolder vision. It's a catalog of women, people of color, the LGBTQIA plus community, people, and even present day people like Colin Kaepernick. It's like people that traditionally do not get monuments and stories that are traditionally untold and the reason why we're using augmented reality is because of the fact that we can make them any size we can put them any place we can do it with permission we can do it without permission so that's what it's all about yeah it's it's super interesting i mean i'm really interested in monuments too and the effect that they have on people and the fact that they're sort of these permanent things Mm. but you're using a device that's somewhat impermanent right like you're creating these apps that might be ephemeral in some way Mm. Is that something that you struggle with? Like the idea that you have to maintain this app over time in a way, it's sort of like uh, the opposite of a monument, right? Mm -hmm. But it also allows you flexibility, which monuments don't have. Uh, Is that something you think about when you create these apps or these art pieces? It's a tactic. Um, 
I'm going to start with like the monuments first and then move into the AR monuments. So the way that I feel about this is that you look at Christopher Columbus and you look at, you compare Columbus to Adolf Hitler, for example. There are no statues of Adolf Hitler standing in Germany today. But everyone knows who he is. So it's not as if you're erasing the history. It's about what a monument really means. If you look at German curricula, they acknowledge the fact that their people had a part in genocide, right? And like they really unpack it and everyone understands it. It's not sugarcoated. And if you go to Berlin, you can't go more than 100 meters in Berlin without seeing some sort of memorial mm-hmm. of a family that was taken away by the Nazis or by the SS. And that's necessary. That's important. You have to be hyper aware of that. And then if you look financially, they paid reparations out to these families as they should. The US, it's a completely different case. And so the way that I feel is that, you know, I don't have to stand on my soapbox and give every stat to uh, every stat in the book to prove that st- systemic racism is a thing. Most people agree mm. in liberal circles at least that it's a thing. Um, and so the way that I see it is that challenging the notion that someone who is regarded with a national holiday, who has the, who is, who has the name of our country's capital and who is literally in statues all over the country, like challenging that notion and challenging the fact that like there's so much hypocrisy embedded in the social foundation of our, of our laws, our systems, our processes as a country, that is necessary to get to the point of reparations and acknowledgement and democratizing narratives in, in some place that has such rich culture. So the way that I see it is that with monuments, it's like, look, if systemic racism wasn't a thing, myself as an individual, I'd be tackling other issues and someone more sensitive can go ahead and handle the statues. It's not even fully about the statues. Mm-hmm. It's about the narratives and what that means in terms of oppression in terms of how that impacts people's lives in the daily. Now, in terms of augmented reality, the way that I see it is that it's it's a simple way to get these stories out, uh, get these stories out that people don't traditionally engage with. Right. And so there's power to seeing people that look like you in positions of authority who have completed great who have completed great achievements like look at black panther like representation matters mm-hmm. and, the, and the numbers and the the numbers in terms of the crowd turnout the numbers in terms of the dollar that's spent it's showing that people are hungry for that right so like the first step is to get the story out and over time if we want to do monuments in the traditional stone 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 form or redefine what that means in cool immersive ways i'm all for it but this is a the ar monuments is a step in, of a process that is much greater than what we're doing much greater than myself and just want to add fuel to the fire yeah no i mean it seems like it's all about creating that discussion right and Absolutely. you know you what who are some of the people that you've created monuments of so far so so far we have um we have Colin Kaepernick, we have Serena Williams, we have uh, Toussaint Louverture, we have Tupac Amaru, um, we have Audrey Lord, we have Shirley Chisholm. Um, there's a few more I want to keep under wraps yeah. for now, but uh, yeah, we have we have a few that are and this, coming up. And this app is out already, or is it something that's that you're developing currently? So it's not out yet. Um, we're going to be releasing um, at least 10 of the monuments for Black History Month, and that's when the app will be released. And this is under your uh, company that you've started, right? It's yeah. a company or collective? Yeah. So um, Movers and Shakers is a nonprofit. Um, and yeah, started um, 
April of 2017, unofficially incorporated December 2017. And now there's three of us full time. And then we have like a bunch of de- dedicated volunteers and it's slowly becoming a thing. What was the process of you know starting this uh, collective like? You started at New Inc or is that, was it done before New Inc? No. Um, <laughs> so like, I guess I have this like, uh, <laughs> I get it from my mom. Yeah. Um, I was working a full time job and then at lunch, so I started organizing. Yeah, it seems like, like you do this a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pattern that I'm noticing right yeah. now. Um, yeah, just started organizing around it and then just started putting more and more time into it. Um, saved up money, took a leap of faith and just started going and then like was a little bit broke and eating pork buns every day. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, part-time job here and there, whatever. And then September 2018 um, was when we started at New Inc. And um, my partner Idris... Uh, joined full time, quit his job at Google, and then February 2019, um, Michael 404. Um, he's our partner as well. Idris is uh, chief technology officer. Michael is chief creative officer, and uh, Michael joined us full time. So that, that's that's the team right now. Awesome. And uh, have any like tech companies approached you to work with you at this point? Are you trying to stay away from sort of like the Silicon Valley scene? Um. No, I mean, it's 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 an interesting song and dance, obviously, um, in terms of like pure tech companies. Like we haven't gotten a call from like Facebook or anything. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I want to call from Facebook. Yeah. That's a whole different conversation. <laughs> right? But um, uh, so right now we're sponsored by Verizon. Um, so we won the 5G EdTech Challenge. It was a national open call um, for creative applications of 5G in the in the classroom um, to increase engagement in different ways. Um, and so we were one of 10 teams we were, uh, that were selected and we were placed in a 15-week product accelerator. Um, and which project was that for specifically? And so it was originally for our AR Monuments project. Mm. The idea was to um, execute geolocation augmented reality uh, and place them in public spaces as well as have them be supplements for uh, classroom learning activities. Uh, but the roadblock was that Given the given the rollout of the of the five G and the timing of the product accelerator, they just weren't aligned. And so they were like, "We we're into into y'all, your skill set, your social mission, all of that. Uh, refine the concept and come back to us." And so, within that the space of that product accelerator, we did that. And so uh, it was through that that we created Unsung. And Unsung is a multiplayer augmented reality learning experience targeted at sixth to eighth grade uh, English students and. The story um, focuses on female singers of color through different periods of time who have used their voices to advocate for social change. Mm. And so what we're trying to do here is not only like unpack stories that aren't about Dr. King and Harriet Tubman and what you traditionally learn about in your schools, but um, sort of empower students to to engage with a new technology, see themselves in a new technology, and also sort of get into um, curricula in a way that we couldn't if we had to change the curricula. So we're intentionally focused on English classes because as long as we're hitting the standards, there's a lot more flexibility versus putting it in an English class where you're teaching to a test and versus putting it into a history class mm-hmm. where you're teaching to a test where that's fact-based and you have to teach these facts and nothing else matters so how does the experience work within the classroom like what do students do like how do they interact with it yeah great question so um students get an ipad and the onboarding process is something that we're developing right now um but the basics of it is that a student would 
would read a passage that aligns with the Common Core standards, and then they would work together in groups to answer the questions in the app. And so the way the story box looks, it's like a digital dollhouse. Hmm. And within the digital dollhouse, there are different rooms. And so imagine an escape room where you have to solve different puzzles to move to each room. It's a similar process in the regard that each story box is about a different character. So, um, or icon. Um, So one example is Odetta Holmes. Odetta Holmes was a folk singer. She was known as the voice of the civil rights movement. She actually opened up for Dr. King during the March on Washington. And so students would read about Odetta and then they would answer specific questions. And then the answer key to those questions would be a code. Hmm. And then based upon that code, you'd be able to unlock a room that, and the content in the room revolves around the content that the students read about. From there, the students would be able to click into the room they'd have six degrees of freedom and look all around the room and they'd see different media so whether it's pictures videos sound they could play pick things up and play like a little guitar let's say and all of the media would revolve around a specific theme the students would work together to figure out what that theme is and then once they get a correct answer to that theme they'd be able they'd be they would unlock the next phase and be able Mm. to go to the next um piece of content and then explore that room and these so rooms so these rooms are all augmented reality rooms yes and w- once you enter them though you see them almost like virtual reality but through a, a lens yes. so you can like explore them within your own classroom in some exactly way. yeah and do the students ever create content within the app or are they more responding to content that's being presented to them yeah so for for now it's just responding to the content and um sort of a barrier for us i'd be i'd love to maybe talk to you offside about about uh figuring out ways to to democratize these tools, but sort of what we what we've uh, encountered throughout our process is that we're in a space where it's very much like um, the dot com boom, mm-hmm. where it's where at the time where during the dot com boom you needed a certain skill set to make a website. Now with uh, you know your Squarespaces and your Wixes of the world, it like everyone can do it, right? And that's sort of the situation that we're with uh, that we're here. That's the situation that we've encountered with our augmented reality um, in the regard that like making quality content still requires a specific skill set. Um, and, you know, it's deeper in the stack and we'd like to sort of unpack that and make it more readily available for students to be able to make things of a similar quality. But from our experience, it's just not there yet. Yeah. So are you working with developers to develop these pieces or is, are you doing it yourself too? Yeah. 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 Um, is it your team like the three people? Or? No, 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 no. Thank <laughs> God. Say, wow. How are you no, doing no, that with three people? It's yeah, crazy. No, no. It's, 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 more, it's more than three of us. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, Igal Nasima, um, mm-hmm. Superbright, um, they're doing a lot of the, ba- uh, the backend development work with us. Uh, we're working with a team of writers. Um, excuse me. Yeah. A team of writers. Uh, we're doing a lot of like UX, UI testing in in different schools. We're t- talking to a lot of students, to a lot of teachers. It's like a it's a whole thing. How do you find designing an experience like this? I mean, for me, I've done some AR myself, and it feels like you're making a film, but also you're making you know this coded narrative, and there's like a lot of different parts that have to come together to make it work in some way. Do you storyboard it out ahead of time, or do you yeah. do you do a lot of user testing with students? Yes, to both. Yeah. Um, a lot of it is three dudes in in a room with a whiteboard, right? Just, just, just drawing, <laughs> drawing, drawing. You're not in like middle school, right? So you're gonna you're not yeah. gonna know how people are thinking necessarily. Yeah. yeah, and and so like, what's what's kind of scary about this process is that, at least at first, before we started doing our our user testing, 
Um, you know, a lot of it was just leap of faith assumptions. We think this would work. We feel this would work. And then when you talk to students and you talk to teachers, like they're in a whole other world, right? And at the end of the day, if the students don't like it, it doesn't work. And if the teachers don't find it useful as a tool and doesn't hit their standards, it doesn't work. So it was, we had like a huge sigh of relief when this, uh, the students first started touching the app and they found it intuitive. We didn't, there was a lot we just didn't have to explain. That was great. And then in terms of the actual content, the teachers told us not only that, um, that it was useful for English classes and what they were looking for in the classroom, but we spoke to teachers outside of English and they spoke about the fact that our story box storytelling format is flexible enough to the, to the uh, that it can be applied in uh, history classes that it can be applied in arts classes, mm-hmm. science classes. So this is bigger than English. Um, and we don't know where we're going, but we'll, we're along for the ride. Yeah. It's super exciting. Um, do you, are you continuing to develop it now? Or like, is there a future version of the story box that's coming out? Yeah. So, um, after the product accelerator from Verizon, um, they, we, they made it down to five teams. Um, and there may be another, there may be another, but they cut it down to a few teams uh, that made another round. And so at this point, our task between now and September of 2020 is to make Unsung scalable. Hmm. Um, and so we're going to launch it in 40 schools uh, by then uh, with Verizon support. And by September 2021, they want to put it in 100 schools. Oh, that's great. So we're really excited What's it? About I mean, that. what do you aim for when you're making an educational AR experience? Like, in what sense? Like... Is the goal to entertain the students, but also to, to convey the knowledge? Or is it, I mean, like, are you going in with the same mindset that you're going in with a protest piece? Or is it a completely different uh, mm-hmm. goal? Great question. So uh, it sounds really corny, but like edutainment is, yeah. really, is really what we're going for. Because at the end of the day, the kids are on social media. Like, I remember when I was a little kid, I was playing a lot of FIFA. And now it's Fortnite. Like, we're really competing for their attention while at the same time, like we want them to leave with, with valuable knowledge. Right. So when it comes to preparing something for a protest, the only thing that we're focused on is that key insight of like, Oh, wow. First, this technology is cool. But second, I'd never thought about things this way, or Mm -hmm. I never saw this person in that light. Right. Um, With education, it's a little bit more complicated because Number one, kids have so much energy and their attention spans, at least I can speak for myself, I, I had no attention span. <laughs> <laughs> which is funny because you seem to do three different things all at once, which maybe is helpful, right? You yeah. like, had a full-time job, you can then create this other project at the same time. So maybe the, the, the curse. <laughs> yeah, maybe the lack of attention span is helpful to you in some way. <laughs> but um, at the end of the day, like there is a specific structure um, by which we need to ensure that this that students are making specific thematic thematic uh thematic connections that the level of reading comprehension is is at par with like experiences that do not include ar right um so there are definitely elements in terms of like academic in an academic context that we want to teach but then outside of that the other element is the social element Mm -hmm. so I see value in teaching a white boy about about what it means to have privilege and access. So perfect example would be the story of Ella Shepard. So Ella Shepard is one of our story boxes. She was uh, born on Andrew Jackson's plantation and she was a talented singer and she ended up teaching at um, the Fisk Free School for Coloreds, which is now Fisk, Fisk University. It was the first school in the United States um, that gave uh, quality edu- 
education of inequality to black people as it did to whites. And she founded this group called the Jubilee Singers. And the Jubilee Singers went around the country and around Western Europe on tour. And their concerts actually fundraised for the endowment of Fisk University. Now, the reason why I bring this up in relation to privilege is because they had access to everywhere. They performed in front of uh, President Grant. They performed in front of the Queen of England. But even though they were essentially rubbing elbows with royalty, a lot of the times they couldn't go through the front door. There were times where they literally couldn't walk into a hotel or they had to sleep outside. Like that dynamic is real. And so because of the fact that our experience puts you in the point of view of, of the, uh, of the subject, just as you would if you were reading a biography, Aside from the common core English standards, a big focus of ours is like unpacking over time what it meant to succeed, but also be, have restricted access mm -hmm. and how you would persevere through that. And using this medium to, to tell that story in that way is something that I think a lot of people that have more privilege are not traditionally exposed to. Yeah, definitely. Do you find that there's opposition to your educational pieces like there is to your protest pieces? Have you encountered anything like that, like from the classroom or teachers? So far in terms of our educational pieces, uh, things have been mild-mannered. Um, for our protesting stuff, it's been a different story. There really? have been podcasts about me specifically. Um, really? I've gotten like, yeah. Like you know, like angry like, podcasts about you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what were the circumstances of that? Like, what was it a specific project? Was it the Columbus Project or? Um, so I, I was on a podcast. Um, what was it? Um, Kent Buys podcast. Mm -hmm. um, Voices of VR. And I talked about just like my practice, uh, everything that I do. And it was like almost two hours just dissecting point by point how I was race baiting and how I wanted to erase history. Wow. And um, yeah, I think they, wanted, they were painting me as a communist, I think. <laughs> Um, or how do you close deal? to it. How do you deal with that? Like if someone's, you know, were you face to face with the person in the room talking about this? No, I found the link. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> I found the link online. I mean, oh, okay. it, it just, it comes with the territory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at the end, of, at the end of the day, I guess like, it's part of the discussion though, right? Like that means that you've hit a chord with people and you're, you're having a conversation, you know, like yeah. if that conversation never happened. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it would be the status quo. You know, it's, it's important to just start the conversation, whether it was an AR piece or a piece in the classroom. And if it makes people mad, you're probably doing the right thing. Right. Right. And so like, you know, I'd be, I'd be naive to think that, that one AR piece or a simple experience is going to unpack generations of trauma or fragility, um, or systemic racism as a whole, right? And it's really, healing is a process. And AR is just a tool to facilitate that necessary healing process because the alternative is continued oppression. So if it's gonna piss some people off, like we can engage in a dialogue about it and I'd be happy to talk to whoever. Yeah, do you, are there other people that are working within the realm of AR uh, to, to use as a technology for protests? For protests specifically. Um, or to encourage political conversations. I mean, I've seen some projects, but you're kind of the person that people talk about a lot for this this sort of stuff. I found. 
I mean, I found you through Adi, who was a guest on this podcast mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, who ran Afrotectopia, and you you participated in Afrotectopia yeah. as well, and that's yeah, where yeah. I saw your work originally. I think right, so right. you had some pieces there. I think yeah. they were the Columbus pieces. Yeah, they right? were. They yeah, were. and um, I thought it was amazing because I hadn't seen AR used in that way before, specifically. Yeah. I mean, I've seen a lot of you know games in AR. I've seen a lot of you know kind of flashy. Here's some object floating in the real world, right. but there's not a lot of storytelling, and there's not a lot of uh, activism specifically. Right. So like, it depends on how you define activism, right? Cause like, um, a thousand cuts, um, it's a great VR piece that like, I think it's honestly, I think it's for white people. It puts you in the shoes of a black man, um, from being a kid to, um, being an older person. And like, it's sort of like, uh, it puts you through the microaggressions and the macroaggressions that, um, someone like myself would face. Um, and I say that's activism in the regard that like, at the end of the day, activism is making people uncomfortable um, and trying to achieve a specific goal. In this case, the goal was to open eyes, right? So, like, I haven't, although I, while I haven't seen so much of uh, VR, AR in street protests, but I think the day will definitely come. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen a lot of pieces, um, like A Thousand Cuts, um, where it's sort of, or like Lessons in Her Story, where it, it you know, you can hold you can hold your uh, phone over a dollar bill or different textbooks, and you can see um, the men being replaced by women. Like that in itself is disruptive protest in a different form. Yeah, it's almost um, like alternate reality, right? Very much alternate so. reality. Yeah. I know you're familiar with that. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. And are you? What do you see as the difference between art and uh, activism? The difference between art because I was thinking about your definition of activism just now, and it was to get people mad. And to convey a specific point of view, right? And a lot of art falls under that same category. Is is there an inherent difference you see between art and activism, or are they the same? So I think both of them have different branches because there's activism that is um, designed to add fuel to a fire, um, and then there's activism that has specific objectives. Um, so if you look at like Occupy Wall Street. I saw in a talk one time, someone mentioned the fact that without Occupy Wall Wall Street, like the relative success of the 2016 Bernie Sanders campaign wouldn't have happened, right? And then if you look at the relative success of his campaign, someone like AOC probably wouldn't have had that space. Mm -hmm. And now let's see what what happens in the future, right? Um, But in other cases, um, with art, a lot of it is just, you know, I'm making this for the sake of exploring the idea of questioning to explore the idea of provoking other questions to expire whatever right there's no specific cause but then you look at like um the shepherd uh fairy piece of obama like right. that had a very specific yeah. cause right <laughs> it did so like it at the end of the day both are really methods both are tools to achieve whatever the artists or activists wants modes um, of communication they're mode yeah there are huh. modes of communication so i, I don't think I think it depends on who you are, really. Um, yeah. And let's talk about your piece, uh, We the People, which is a 360 documentary piece. How did that mm-hmm. come about? Yeah. So um, We the People started as a result of Jump into the Light, actually. Um, that was my first foray into the immersive world and trying to get my hands dirty. Um, so the way it worked was that it was the day of the Trump inauguration. Um, I borrowed a 360 camera from them. And I uh, did a performance piece. Um, I put on chains and I wore a sign that said property of Trump and his friends in the 1%. I just wanted to capture what was going on because obviously there was a lot of boiling tension that day. And where where did you do this performance piece? Um, I went down to to D.C., tried to get into the inauguration. 
And the Secret Service stopped me because they said that I like with those chains I could choke somebody, and with <laughs> with my monopod I could hit somebody. And they were worried like, about you like doing damage to other people at that inauguration. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! And I was like, I was like, I think I'm the unsafe yeah. one here. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, whatever <laughs> yeah and what was the was experience like, like i mean what was it like to be there doing this performance piece though um was it unsettling or? yeah i mean i was i was i was prepared i was ready for whatever because you know it's a lot of trump supporters on that day right mm-hmm. so you have to you have to be realistic and understand that you're walking into a situation where anything can happen but the like the i guess it's just the most offensive thing that i heard in the day was um, there was a woman with a MAGA hat drinking beers with her friends and she looked at me and she said, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. I want to, I want to take him and tie him to the parking meter. Um, so that was kind of weird. Um, but then I did like a little social experiment as well because I wanted to get both perspectives and, and hear how like liberals and Trump folk <laughs> felt on that day. Uh, and the Trump people did not want to speak to me when I was wearing the chains, but as soon as I took off the chains, then we started having some sort of dialogue. Um, yeah. And that was, that was the start of it. And then from there, I just saw the value in capturing events that would not be repeated through the medium of the future, especially given the fact that we're in this space, it's going to be studied with the scrutiny of the Vietnam war and the civil rights movement and like major social shifts, paradigm shifts in our time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just went, got a couple friends together from college when we uh, took the camera to different spots and spoke to, people of varying viewpoints um and that was actually the genesis of the columbus project because from there i wanted to do more like on the ground organizing um and so the columbus idea came from the fact that it was like okay let's start this initiative um let's start an intentional initiative that can like shift conversation in a big way um and that's sort of how it how it evolved. And the 360 video really put people kind of in that place. That was the goal of using that versus just doing like a traditional documentary or yes. performance video. So so I would say our most provocative piece um, goes back to the Charlottesville riots. Um, so on the day of the riots, I had the chains in my backpack with the experience in my mind knowing that certain people wouldn't want to talk to me if I was wearing the chains and I wanted to talk to everyone. And I remember walking to the park that day and I saw people hitting each other with hammers and flagpoles and tear gas everywhere. And the Nazis were arranged in a Spartan phalanx. And it was pretty clear that this was not the environment for a productive interview. Um, so then I just put on the chains and like ran up to the Spartan phalanx and um, I don't know if I could sit. I don't know if I could curse in the podcast. Yeah, you can. I basically, I basically I said, "This is what you represent, motherfuckers." Just like as loud as I could, and it was crazy because it was a sea of them, and it was maybe like a hundred. And there were two reactions that I noticed because no one else was wearing chains. Um, as I'm screaming at them, half of them, like their eyes just opened up, their mouths open, like just like surprised, like oh, what is going on here? And like the other half, it was just like amplified rage. Their teeth, like grit, their eyebrows just like got real close like you could see the anger it's like a charge type of thing and they were throwing stuff at me whatever um i captured that in uh in 360 mm-hmm. and so it's always a little triggering for me because i was there and my life was a bit in danger yeah but um putting it on on people's heads um is 
it's always interesting to see their reaction, especially because we show this in a lot of galleries and pop-ups. Um, and so the audience that goes to galleries isn't always the type of audience that's going to go to a protest. Um, and so sort of um, exposing them to an environment that would provoke questions that w- they wouldn't ordinarily ask, um, is, I think is fundamentally important. And number two, um, at least in my experience, I think I've seen that it, it lasts with them when I've like shown friends and had conversations as far as like the meaning of seeing something where you can look all around and you're in it versus on a screen. Yeah, I think you know, there's always this debate about VR and 360 video and the empathy machine, um, whether it really puts you in someone's shoes. Right. But if it's if it's a really designed experience versus a documentation of your reality, <laughs> I feel yeah. like it's different. Do you know what I mean? Like I've yeah. seen some 360 documentaries where it's very clear, you know, carefully produced and it's, you know, designed to get a certain reaction out of you. Right. This is like you're capturing what's going on and I can be there next to you in a very disturbing kind of way. Um, do you ever worry, though, that it's because I wasn't actually at that protest, but I'm experiencing it through this medium that it somehow takes away from that experience? Do you know what I mean by that? Like, if I'm watching it at a gallery, it's kind of what you brought up, but is it just important that you have that discussion with me? Or is it that, uh, is it some way that I'm not participating in the protest? You know what I mean? <laughs> because I'm experiencing it virtually. So I would I would think that the, that the question would hold more merit if it wasn't all over CNN mm-hmm. and if there weren't other forms of media that showed it. Like, if this were the only other form that existed that showed Charlottesville, then I think that question um would hold a lot of weight but at the end of the day people like the fact that i just when i give talks like all over the place and i just say charlottesville people instantly know what it is right. the reason why they instantly know what it is is because of their media consumption right and they picture that one video we've seen over and over again through cnn right exactly yeah and so i think that providing uh a deeper layer to what happened on that day um is valuable Especially given the fact that um, I can engage in a dialogue with a person who might have had questions right after. Right. And are you always there when you're presenting your work? Yeah. Yeah. And that's important to you, too. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. For sure. So what's next? What are you working on now? Yeah. So what's next? Um, So, yeah. So the Monuments Tour is is coming out. um, Well, the Air Monuments are coming out uh, for Black History Month. We'll be doing a few talks um, around that. And then we'll be at South by Southwest EDU. Um, talking about our work for augmented reality in public spaces, uh, Idris and I, and um, and then from there, um, just preparing so that we can implement our our work at scale with the forty schools. And uh, I'm trying to be like you. I'm doing, doing a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, yeah. What's the name of the podcast? So the podcast is called Unpacked, and it's making space for conversations that we don't know how to talk about. So. Going back to the going back to the the topic of immigration and the fact that in many cases, like our state is deporting people who are indigenous to this land. Like, what does that really mean, right? Or the fact that if we're talking about, um, if we're talking about the fact that private prisons are being abolished, that's a great that's a great thing. But what does that mean as far as like artificial intelligence and? them taking over the roles of others and like like the means of production and what that means for how the previously incarcerated people will exist in a new space and like the jobs that they would have 
maybe taken or also being taken by AI. Like we need to unpack these conversations and add nuance to these conversations if we're going to enact real substantive change. So that's what it's about. That sounds great. When is it coming out? Um, we're aiming for Black History Month. Mm -hmm. So starting with a couple episodes here and there. Awesome. I love that you use all these new technologies uh, <laughs> in completely different ways than the most people are using them. You know, it's to encourage different discussions, uh, whether it's AR or podcasting even, right? Just to kind of bring people to issues that they wouldn't have been brought to otherwise. I think it's great. I mean, I think like, you know, I'm I'm really interested to see where you take this in the future. Thank you. <laughs> so keep us in the loop for sure. Um, before we go, Glenn, I have some rapid fire questions for you. We always do this at the end of every uh, podcast. Go. They're kind of silly questions. Uh, so just answer them with the first thing that comes to for mind, sure. basically. Um, what's the best piece? This is actually not a silly question, but I want to ask anyways. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Breathe. That's I'll just it. do it right now. <laughs> if you, uh, that's very good advice. Uh, if you could have three wishes randomly, uh, what would those wishes be for the world or for yourself or whatever, you know, whatever you'd like? Three can wishes I, of anything. Can you I wish for more wishes? No, you can't wish for more wishes. That's, that's the number what one. Is, what good is that? That's the rule of this wish thing, this hypothetical wish scenario that everyone always asks about. No more wishes. Wish once to, to be able to talk anyone into doing anything. Wish two. Um, an abyss for a stomach so I can eat anything, but it doesn't affect my body. What do you like to eat specifically? Oh, you only want it. I'm a sucker for pork belly. <laughs> I really? I love me some pork belly. Yeah. Just by itself or like with a... Uh, like in bao yeah. by itself. I like, I like a... Marinate it in like soy sauce and brown sugar and I'll do a, a slow bake, some ginger, some... <laughs> let, let me just... Yeah. Um, and the third wish... Um, for people not to be so in their feelings like, mm. a lot of problems that we have are so avoidable but ego and they're specific and their own mind feelings though yeah, yeah it's all about the feelings like if we could just like put that to the side and just breathe <laughs> but you also put people in their feelings with your work I think to some extent yeah it's a process right. <laughs> it's a process <laughs> you need them to be there a little bit to yeah, join yeah. you it's because I don't have the wish right that's true <laughs> Um, who would play you in, when they make the movie of your life, I should say, when? Because well, that'll happen at some point. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, oh, what's his name? You know what's cool? I like that guy, Luca, from uh, from uh, Gronish with the, with <laughs> the right. locks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool dude. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I'd want to be worthy of having him, yeah. having him play me, though. Like, he's a real cool dude. <laughs> well, Glenn, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I can't wait to see what uh, new projects you come up with and to hear your podcast, too. Thanks a lot, um, And a we'll be in touch. And uh, for State of the Art, this is Gabe Barcia Colombo. I will talk to you next week. Thanks so much for listening today. Uh, this is Gabe Barcia Colombo for the State of the Art podcast. Uh, State of the Art is actually created by Ethan Appleby. Uh, we have a great, fantastic producer named Vanessa Wilson. Uh, and our audio specialist slash miracle waveform master is Weston Stevens. Uh, so stay tuned for next week. Uh, we're going to have another amazing guest. I'm not going to tell you who it is quite yet, but I promise it will be worth it. Bye. <laughs>